What's good, everyone? I'm Langston Clark, founder and organizer of Entrepreneurial Appetite, a series of events dedicated to building community, promoting intellectualism, and supporting Black businesses. Thank you again for your support of Entrepreneurial Appetite's Black Book Discussions. Beginning this season, we are inviting our listeners to support the show through our Patreon website. The founding 55 patrons will get live access to our monthly discussions for only $5 a month. Your support will help us hire an intern or freelancer to help with the production of the show. Of course, you can also support us by giving us five stars, leaving a positive comment, or sharing the show with a few friends. Thank you for your continued support. In this special bonus episode, we partner with Dr. Devin Walker and Dr. Javier Wallace, host of the Black with Blue Passports podcast, to bring you a conversation with G. Christopher Cutcalvin, founder of the Belizean Education Empowerment Foundation. Today I'm partnering with two of my homeboys, actually three of my homeboys from graduate school at the University of Texas at Austin to do an interview of Christopher Cut Kelvin, who is a social entrepreneur and philanthropist. But I want to take this time now to introduce my friends, Devin Walker and Javier Wallace, who have their own podcast that emphasizes Black folk who travel and Black people who do business abroad throughout the world. What's going on, Dr. Clark? What's up, fellas? Good to see y'all. Yeah, man. Thanks for having us. Yes. Glad to be here. I love that introduction, too, by the way. I think we come to shake it up a bit, throw some of that formality off. But it, it's, it, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> he was real clean when he came in with that intro, right? I got a, I got, I got, I got a thing, you know, so... I, I respect it. It's respect good. So what I, I think everyone's going to hear going to have a different feel for the way I've done Entrepreneur Appetite in the past. But can y'all tell us about you all's podcast? Tell them what it is, Dr. Wallace. Oh, come on now. So Black and Blue Passports, y'all, is a podcast that Devin, Dr. Devin Walker and I, um, we went into a venture on to really think about how we as Black people, particularly Black people from the United States, are navigating the world ourselves and our unique identities as Black men, but then also featuring other people who are Black from their different walks of life from around the world. But a lot of these people are based in the United States and are connected here and are thinking about what they're doing out in the world. And we really wanted to have a space to encourage a lot of young people, particularly because we met at the University of Texas at Austin and worked a lot with young people in international education, study abroad programs and the likes for them to be able to tune in, listen to things that people are doing, saying, and encourage them to move beyond their borders and see the challenges that exist beyond the borders and also disrupt a lot of narratives, I think, associated with traveling, particularly Black people traveling the world, leaving from the United States. And maybe Dr. Walker or Devin can go ahead and clean me up and add some more there about what it is. No, that was that was beautiful, man. I'm I'm great with what you put down. So with that, man, let's let's bring on our, our guest, our joint guest for the day, Mr. Cuddy. Cut Kelvin. Let's bring this brother, man. Happy to see you, man. What's up, brothers? What's going on? What's going on? Chilling. How you doing, brother? Happy, good. Happy New Year to y'all. Happy New Year. That's right. It's the first time I'm seeing y'all this New Year. Yeah, and we calling this thing each other. You know, everything's different with the pandemic now. Yeah, so I haven't seen you with this much hair ever. I had no idea. I, I ain't seen myself with this much yeah, hair. You had the mop top going Breaking, on. breaking. A, you know, it's funny. Mama, uh, one of um, my favorite moments, I had a lot of good moments over this winter break, but sitting down on Christmas Day, my mom always was like, you got to cut your hair. You got to cut your hair because, you know, she comes from that very colonial British background being from Belize. And uh, she looked over at me in the middle of breakfast. Your hair looks really good. 
And I made my Christmas, yo. Oh, really? Yo, yeah. And it was the first time she acknowledged, you know, breaking some of those serial cultures that we have. It's, you know, hair, clothes, dress, talk, all that stuff is all wrapped up into the program we have. And so for me, it's been really dope to see like, oh, I got curly hair, it grows. And it's not, you know, having to cut. I've never had it this long. So we'll see what happens. It's going to become the, deco- the decolonizing <laughs> thought process. Yeah, there you go, man. Down with colonization. Down with the British imperial power that's <laughs> in the world. All through my hair. That's what's up. I ain't never seen with that much hair anyway, either. Yeah, bro. You think you got to do it while you can. Hey. Hey. You may not have that genie. You know, who, you know who can't no more. I know that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hope y'all looking. I'm proud to be bald, baby. Ain't nothing to it. I keep my hat on. I, keep my, I can't get no bald head. I already got an uneven tan on my head, so I got to keep that thing going. Oh, man. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So, um, how, how did we, I think it's before we get started talking about cutting the work that he's doing, we should talk a little bit more about how we all met. And I think, I think, I think I'm going to start first. You got to start uh, first. You're the original. Yeah. Yes. I'm, I'm first generation. So, <laughs> the, the, the four of us, the four of us are part are part of what used to be called the African-American Male Research Initiative, which is now the Human Sweat Center for Black Males at UT Austin. Mm -hmm. And so I was probably one of the original cohort of Black male students to come into the program to get their PhD with, well, I was behind Albert Bimper and LeGarrette King, who are both now professors at Colorado State and the University of Buffalo. And Mm -hmm. it didn't have a name at that that time. It was just brothers Mm -hmm. helping brothers get through their doctorates. And then I think two years in, Javier, forgive me if I'm getting the dates. What was it, 2011 or 2012? 2011. 2011. This brother. No, wait. It was, no, it was 2011 because I graduated in uh, in December 20. No, I don't It was 2011. I think it was definitely the 2011, 2012 school year. 2011. It, it, was, it was that school year. So 2011. So Javier comes in. I think you were at FAMU, right? Yes, sir. So this is what happens, right? So every year, another brother was coming in to the pipeline. And Javier was supposed to come in 2012. So he comes in, he does his visit. He comes to class with me and uh, Martin Smith, who's a dean or something at Duke right now. I don't know. He's about to be president some Sunday. Anyway, <laughs> um, so he comes to class with me and Martin. We show him around UT. And then we have this, this suite where our advisor's office is located. And we used to call that the intellectual barbershop because we would just sit outside his office and just talk about all types of stuff there. So Javier goes on this this journey all around the world and comes back a, a new man. It's like he's glowing in a different type of his whole aura is different. Oh, yeah. But Javier comes back after Devin shows up, and Devin was randomly found my old roommate and took over his. They met. Did y'all meet on Craigslist or something like yeah, that? Yeah, I found an old roommate on Craigslist. Great. And I showed up. I showed up to Texas. I had literally moved from Korea to DC to Texas. I started even going like home to LA yet. So I had my two suitcases, and I'm I get there a week early and do won't move out yet. So he's like, "Yo, you can leave like some boxes at the house." So I come over and like drop off two boxes. And then I, I go to the damn, um, what are them things called? Hostel. hostel. Yeah. And down by the river. I went and stayed at the hostel at the river for like a week until his roommate moved out. And then I move in and Langston's my roommate. 
And it was crazy. Like have a have a roommate who has the same advisor as you, uh, studying the same program as you. Man, hey, I didn't know it then, but it was a major blessing, and obviously the reason why I'm here today. Uh, that's 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 for sure. That's for sure. And, and, and it should be noted that that this isn't like a roommate situation where we were in a dorm and got put together. This was random. Yeah, we like in the city. Random we, hey, Riverside. Yep. Dang. Wow. Yeah. I never heard that. Yeah, that's ridiculous. Yeah, man. And so, then uh, I don't know who came who who came first. When, how did you coming? When did you end up enrolling in the pro? Oh, Cuddy came before Hobby did. Yeah, right? I did. Yeah. 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 I came yeah. in 2015. I uh I had no idea what I was getting myself into when I showed up at Texas. It was like you know opportunity. I um shout out to Dr. Gregory Vincent. You know we were talking and talking about his vision for what he wants to do. Um and I came in, interviewed, and they were like, okay, cool, come on. Uh for the it was for the was it Center for Males of Color, right? That was to be the coordinator for that. And I didn't know anything about Amory. I didn't know anything about Project Males. I didn't know anything about all of these different entities and I showed up and they're like, yeah, you're supposed to be helping all these organizations grow. And I was like, okay, cool. Let's do it. And I had no idea about research. I had no idea about grad school. I had no idea about none of this. And I found myself surrounded by some of the most brilliant and beautiful minds in, as far as black educators in the world. I'm like, how did this happen? Nothing but God, yo. Uh, God and networking. Now, I, I do want to clarify one thing. Um, Langston made it seem as though I showed up in 2011 and just disappeared until 2017. I had a six year man. I really want to, to clarify this that Please. the University of Texas at Austin mm-hmm. <laughs> denied my application to come mm-hmm. to the university. I have no choice. Oh, I am. Masters? Huh? For your masters, you apply for your masters? Oh, for the PhD. Oh, and they told me my GRE scores wasn't high enough. Nah, granted, I did Christmas tree the GRE test. I will give myself that. So yeah, I didn't have a high enough score. And they were like, yeah, uh, try, you can come back in. This was the spring. And they're like, you can come back in the fall and just do the GRE again. So I'm like, you know what? I've always wanted to move to Panama where my dad is from. I'm about to go. I'm going to take my little GRE book. And I'm going to study and I'm going to take the test again, get a higher score and come back. Man, look. Them six months turned into six years. <laughs> but I want to make sure we are, are clear that the reason why I didn't go is because UT denied me. That's okay. important. And I, I just did not want to go. That's important. It was your advisor, by the way. We're homeboys now. We're cool. Dr. <laughs> <laughs> Harrison. Shout out to Dr. Harrison, man. Hey, yeah. man. The OG. The OG. For real. So, so one one thing like I've always been jealous of y'all, not not in like an evil type of way, envy, like it's like a positive envy because while y'all were at UT, all of you had an opportunity to study abroad. Like y'all went to South Africa, China, Panama, Costa Rica, all of these places. And Cuddy, since we're like we're focusing on you. Can you talk about how those experiences, maybe they did or maybe they didn't, helped you develop the business that you have now, the social entrepreneurship that you're doing now? Tell us, tell us a little bit how you got into that and about your organization. Yeah, I, I think I started working in 2013, 2014, really around 
Um, my first real project was working on a clothing and toy donation at my old job, Pearson. Uh, we were going to go down. My mom hadn't been home in like 27 years. And we were going to go down uh, to Belize in June of 2015. And so I was like, it would be great um, going down there if we can do something, you know, kind of impact for the country. Um, so I started to kind of plug away at some of the contacts I had known. I had just started going back to Belize in like 2011. Um, and when I was there, I recognized like the only difference between me and the individuals I see on a daily when I'm there is the opportunity for education, right? And most of that is just, again, God and networking, right? Because I grew up in South Central LA. Dad was military, moved around a lot. Um, people always say I'm from all these different places. <laughs> Go ahead, Devin. <laughs> you know, Hawaii, dog. Hey, I, I lived in Hawaii too, and it, you know, culture is part of it. You know, we were talking today about um, Costco, right? I'm like, which which uh, which is a Costco or Sam's that has their food outside in Hawaii? All the foods outside. And this is those different cultural things that you don't know until you experience. Like, oh, damn! So that moving and being a part of all these different um, communities, I think, is a blessing for me. Um, but in terms of beliefs. Those networking skills I had from all these different places played a role in me being able to support and create partnerships within the country really quick. So starting to go in 2011, by 2015, we already started to create a partnership with an orphanage um, that's in the, the Ladyville area right outside of Belize City. And so we were able to do, I think it was like 19 barrels. Um, and the way I did, I, um, I started to work with the people at Pearson, all the different teams. And we said, OK, whatever team. Um, brings in the most toys and, and clothes, we'll do a Belizean lunch. And so my mom decided she would cook the, you know, food real easy for her. She made a, a gang of food and we started the, the, um, the drive. And next thing I know, we had like toys and clothes and shoes and it was really overwhelming because the part I didn't realize, and I got to really, you know, shout out my fam for this is that when these stuff come in, you have to sort them. And like you have to like make sure that what you're giving to people, I didn't, I was like, okay, we're gonna get this stuff thrown in a box and we'll find a company to put it there. I didn't actually, I didn't even know how we we're gonna get these items there. So I learned that on, <laughs> I see your eyes, Javi. I learned that on the fly. So we did this thing. It, it was way bigger. Um, I did a slide deck and I pitched it to all the teams and all the units in, in Pearson, San Antonio office. Um, a guy named Dave Crunk was the vice president at the time and Dave really allowed me to like to do this, right? Part as part of my job. Um, and so we started to, to do this drive. And next thing we know, we have, you know, I think we end up feeling like 19 or, you know, I think 19 to 20 barrels. Um, you know, we're talking about thousands of pounds of, uh, of clothes and toys. And we were able to then find a shipping company, uh, Belize Freight. We've been partnering with them ever since to literally take the stuff from my house in San Antonio straight to the door of the orphanage just but i had to figure out how to do all these different steps and all that was part of the growth you know trusting someone to say okay well let me take a step back the clothes had to be sorted and i didn't have a staff i didn't have any volunteers this was just a vision my aunties and my cousins that live in san antonio literally came over and we spent i think it was 12 or 13 hours trying to sort it and then the company told us that you know if we come pick it up it'll cost more so if you get it from san antonio to houston then we'll ship for a lower rate. So then I had to go figure out where I'm going to get this money to ship at. And I'm coming out my own pocket for that. So I didn't even know about the, the financial parts of the logistics for shipping. And that's the part now. I get a lot of donations. People want to donate all kinds of stuff. But then it sits and I got to find money to ship it. So it's a labor of love. 
And so through this whole first process, I'm like, man, this is dope. But when I got to Texas is when I started realizing there's a whole social entrepreneurship space that's out there. And what I'm learning within my graduate program, I was able to literally focus on two things in my graduate program, international nonprofit development work and co-curricular education. And that's why I pinched my tent in those two spaces. And so when it comes to social entrepreneurship, through our study abroad programs in Texas, I was able to take, you know, students to an area in um, Cape Town, Kalisha, a township, and we had like nine or 10 sites. And so I was responsible for them for a month. And that really helped me get out my shells. How do I do this work international on a more sustainable level? And so all these different experiences I had from moving around so much as a kid to getting, you know, lucky and being at Texas and then being able to work under Dr. Moore, Dr. Vincent and all the amazing people there. And the experiences have allowed me to grow my organization into something that is going to be sustainable and somewhere we could help people, give them the opportunities that is the only separation between me and them. What, man, what's the name of your organization, man? The Belize and Education Empowerment Foundation. That's really what we wanted to do. And the way I came up with that name was actually I was sitting in Kailisha and I was trying to figure out like, what, I want to empower people. We want to edify people. And so starting to craft that around our logo, it's like a pencil, but it's also a B. So it's in the top right corner. And really trying to empower people to have the opportunities and the quality of life that they want to have. I really started to decide to organize one day I was sitting on on a veranda outside of the house. It was late in the night and I, it was probably like one or two o'clock and I was waiting for one of my cousins to pick me up and take me where I was staying. And I just kept seeing kids walk up and down the street in Belize City in the middle of the night. They had nowhere to go. Like People out everywhere. We got to organize in order to give these people the the opportunity so that they can grow and see what else is out there. The main influence of them is, is American television. And we know what that looks like. Everywhere you go, I don't care how big or how small the village is or how big or how small the city is in Belize, you're going to get U.S. television. And so they're looking at this constantly about what they're seeing. They're expecting this to be life. And if you're not matching up to the life you see on TV, then you, depression starts sitting in. All these other factors start sitting in, which then how can you be happy if you think that you are supposed to live this way? In reality, we don't even live that way. But we know the difference between how to live and how not to live. When you're all, that's the only impact you see or only influence you see, then it becomes a problem. And so we just hope our education foundation can start to provide opportunities for people to grow in different ways. Man, Cody, you know what you said that was so deep. I even had to start taking a note. You talked about the main thing they watch is, is American television. And I think about how much when we boil down the different social problems in the state, it's like media influence, right? And the way yeah. media creates these narratives, dominant narratives, whatever scripts, whatever people want to call it, ultimately it's been like, what are people being brainwashed with? What are, what are people normalizing? And it's why alternative forms of education, books, movies are so important, which is why the, the, the debate over critical race theory right now is so important. But to boil it back to what you said is American movies. What do we learn about black men and black people from American movies? And Belize is also who are they going to identify with, black people or white people? So what are they? It's like we know America exports culture. We know America exports black culture. But it's also exporting this form of debilitizing who you are in this world and destabilizing you through culture, through your own understanding of yourself. Is co- colonialism at its finest. It's the it's the value system that the media creates. If, if I say this every day, that I believe that that's my value system. The value of black life, the value of education. How do the kids can say, I don't need an education, I'm dropping out of school. Who told you that was okay? That's got to be structured and created in a certain, you know, who's teaching them this? I, I want to jump in here for a second. One, with those donations. <laughs> yes. 
I, I have a social entrepreneurial, uh, well, I think what some would call social entrepreneurial, but particularly the one that I do where we take donations, Afro Latinx Travel, me and my co-founder, Dash Harris Machado. We have one particular program called Black and Brown Dolls and Books for Black and Brown Kids because mm-hmm. in particularly Spanish-speaking Latin America that I'm most mm-hmm. familiar with, there's a dearth of those type of products available, uh, even though the majority of the population does not look like blonde hair Barbie. I mean, it's literally one of the only products that you can find. You're lucky to find Doctora McStuffins, who that is, is no, no. In Spanish, her name is Doctora Juguetes, Dr. Toys. In English, her name is Dr. McStuffins. You're lucky to find Dr. Juguetes in Panama. So we encourage people to come to bring stuff with them, bring stuff with them. Mm-hmm. On any sheet I have, you cannot ship me anything. Don't send me no books. Don't send me no dogs. <laughs> Put it in your suitcase because mm-hmm. I ain't finna pay for that. You know, to mm-hmm. the point that you're making about <laughs> putting stuff in barrels. I'm like, 19 barrels? How much was that? Uh, <laughs> just did 19 barrels <laughs> to Belize. So I wanted to say that so to give the listeners a dose of reality when thinking about what does it mean to move across borders and also to put it in perspective, Amazon Prime is a U.S. phenomenon. The ease that you can have something as exploitative as it is show up to your doorstep within a day does yeah. not go beyond this country in many cases, uh, especially like in Central America. People are surprised. And I'm like, no, there's no mail. You're talking about, can I send it to panel? I'm like, where? Yeah. What's your address? And, and, and just, just to kind of talk about that, I think that's one of the most valuable things for me right now is that we, 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 we're not a big foundation, right? We're very much still a mom and pop shop. You know, I call my cousins or whoever, but one thing that we have that's a separator for us is solid relationships where I have an orphanage that's in a, a village called Flowers Bank. It's hard to get to. You, you go on a one on a regular road. That's a highway. That's a two way highway. Then you cut off to another one way street. Then you cut off into a dirt road, and it's 15 miles outside the city. I got another school that's in the Pomona Valley area, and that's on a dirt road. And having people that can get our products there and trustworthy, and making sure that our money is going where it's gonna it's gonna survive and actually make an impact. It's one of the hardest things because if not, then it's like, okay, how do I get this to where I'm at? I had a guy come to me and said, I want to give soccer equipment. Okay, cool. How do I get the soccer equipment from, I'm still trying to solve this, solve this right now. How do I get the soccer equipment from his company in New Jersey to Belize where we don't have a, a massive shipping population? So, and I wish it was if everybody who wants to Belize would take something, that would be phenomenal. But how do we even treat or help people understand that Belize is a tourist place? I just went on a cruise. The worst part I had was blue, right? Because you got to get on a ship, and you get on the ship, you need to get on another ship to get to the sea. Then it's like, where do I go? And if you don't know and it's not structured right, people don't realize the value of the jewel, as we call it, uh, what Belize is in the Caribbean. And it's that part is so big, bro. It's like, how do you, how do you get to a place where there's there's no address? It's a, it's a village. It's you know people who who live there know how to get there, but until you have those structured partnerships, it's going to be really hard to continue to, to support people who need it. So on that, I want to just make a, say something quickly. I hope I'm not talking over anybody. So I was thinking about it when you were speaking earlier about using education as a tool of empowerment. What I was sitting with, and as I often sit with thinking about the Panamanian context being there, and then you mentioned tourism, Belize, I'm pretty sure Belize principal industry and mode of economic generation, like many places in the Caribbean, even though Belize is not an island, um, is tourism. Mm-hmm. And then it often makes me think about, you know, when we say education, these kids are walking up and down the street, 
And, you know, there is, I've, I have observed that and I've, you know, looked at it deeply where what do young people have to aspire to in that place? Yeah. If everything surrounding them is tourism, you know, it's like, what is the value of this classical education that you're giving me? If at best, all I can do is be a tour guide at best. If, if, if the what's opportunities are there for me are to work on the cruise ships, to work at the ports, to work at the hotels. So it's like, and not make a lot of money and be at the bottom of the totem pole. And I think a lot of kids grapple with that. It's like, you want me to go to school, pay for the uniform, pay for the socks, have a haircut, have the books, have all this. I have to pay. Plus, my parents have to give me breakfast. And then on top, the only thing I'm going to be able to do is be a tour guide. I'd rather stay at home and kick football and hopefully become a soccer player. You know, and I think those realities, too. So I'm wondering how do you deal with that part, especially you, you know, part of this Belizean diaspora that had to migrate to the United States and thinking, why did you have to leave Belize to have a life for yourself? And what does that mean for the people who can't be as mobile as your family has been to build something in the U.S. where you can take advantage of Heman Sweat and Dr. Mm-hmm. Vincent and these networks that have been created to provide opportunities where you don't have to only think about tourists as your li- your your livelihood. Yeah, so we, we try to focus on the fundamental things that people need. We work with the, the Water Walkers Boys and Girls Club. It's in, it's in Belize City. They serve thousands of meals a week to students to talk about that. Education there looks different from here. You get a break to go home for lunch. Well, there's no food at home. Where are you going to get food at? If your parents are not there after school, where are you going to go? Who's going to help you with your, your tutoring? Who's going to help you with your, your meal prepping or whatever that looks like. And so they do a great job and we, we support them fully to make sure they're able to feed meals every, every day to students. And on top of that, we also support with their entrepreneurship club. They have, they have a women's group for battered women and for, for women empowerment and all these different things. The other part to it is also looking at education in a bigger sense. You mentioned the soccer. We support a soccer, a soccer club down there, City Boys FC. And the whole point of supporting the soccer club, most people are like, well, that's sports. Yeah, but we have to help the soccer club understand you have you are part of the education process for the kids you serve. So let's make sure you have uniforms. Let's make sure you have a tent. Let's make sure you have a water water tank so that this, you know you give everything they need so that you can focus on student development and empowerment and not everything that it goes into running a club. And so we've been really been focusing on getting jerseys and all the small things, the, the cones, the balls. I said we got a, a tent. We have the water things, cleat program. So one thing we're going to launch, the pandemic kind of put a wrench in this, but we want to have a, a soccer cleat program where kids can get cleats. And when the cleat, they grow out the cleats, they can change them in. So what happens in America, people buy their kids a cleat. They grow out of it in two or three months. The cleat hasn't reached its max use yet, but now they're throwing it away because they have to get another cleat because the kids, the, the shoes, the shoe has grown or the feet have grown. So we were trying to do a sustainable model where we can get a whole bunch of cleats into the country. And within our, our youth program that we have with City Boys FC, they can trade out the shoes when their sizes are up. So you trade it out, it goes to a kid who's younger, they use it. When their size is up, they trade it out to a bigger shoe and throughout the whole program, and then it becomes sustainable. So your donation then is not just helping one kid get a soccer cleat, right? You're helping kids have that cleat for a year, year and a half, and it actually maxes out the life of the cleat. So it's, it's looking at education in a different sense where it's just not the A's and B's and one, two, threes. It's really the holistic, the life development of these individuals and knowing that what we're doing for them is hoping to expose them to something that they can dream differently. The people who run the soccer club, they're bankers, they're these jobs that you, you have, a, you can create a living off of and you can actually have a quality of life that is worth living. Just not the idea of making everybody a, a soccer star. So, you know, we're going to use this as a tool 
to educate you in different ways. We, we were joking around having a conversation about you, you going back to your house for Christmas. And the first time your mom said, Chris, we might have called you Gilbert. I'm sorry. My mom called me Chris. My mom has never called me Gilbert. <laughs> <laughs> I just had to use your real name. I'm sorry. It's all good. <laughs> G. Christopher, she said, Chris, she liked your hair. But before y'all had this tension because she wanted you to cut your hair. And we were talking about, you know, the colonial mindset says that we have to operate and be and show ourselves to the world in a certain way. I'm wondering how do you, through your social entrepreneurship, negotiate what may be a fine line of providing a liberating and empowering education and an education that is reinforcing some of the negatives of a colonial type of education. Well, shit, if he could figure that out, we would all be good. That's a, that's a, it's a tough question, Langston. I mean, for me, it's really allowing students to get the best they can. Here's the thing about Belize. I'm not sure how you told me about Panama. I've never been there before. But in Belize, most of the education system is built through the, through the church. Wesley College, the Anglican, Methodist, you know, everybody, they have a church. They brought the church in and the first thing they did is put up a school. And so a lot of the major schools are, or the best schools are Christian or religious based. And so when you talk about what they're teaching within the schools, and it's not a religious conversation, but what they're teaching within the schools, the moral and the values that are teaching is going to be completely different than the culture that's there. So there's always going to be a rub in that space. Now we know that that, that education though, and the grammar and the liberal arts part of it is a vehicle to get to different places. And so we're just trying to support students to go. And that means I've, I've literally gone down there. I paid off a student's debt because one of the biggest things we have in, in, in our culture in a diaspora and, um, you know, shout out to the, the new government that's put in. They have a diaspora office now where they're actually focused on the relationship to the diaspora is that so many people will say, oh, so-and-so needs money for school. Okay, well, we believe in education. They send their money down and then the money goes to food or it goes to something else. And then they're, why are you not in school? You're supposed to be graduating. You're supposed to be getting a degree. And that money's been used for something different. And so part of the, part of the work that we do is making sure that if you give us money to pay for something when we're in country, that we're actually going to pay the, the balances or the scholarship fund or whatever that the money is intended to do. And that's a that's a big difference where people can actually have a trusted vehicle where they can impact education within the country. So if you have a kid that's your niece, nephew, grandchild, we'll actually go, you give us the money, we'll go and make the payment for you. And that, I know it's not the exact same question you asked me, but part of that is that we have to be able to work within the systems that, are, that, that have been put in play within the country. The flip side of that is getting the government to realize like, the impact with colonial education that students are getting and how does it fit their model as a country. And that then goes back into media influence because you have two different systems that are fighting against each other, whether we want to agree or, or believe it or not. Right? A lot of stuff we see in the media does not match the religious background. It doesn't match the moral background. It doesn't match the moral standards. As black people in America, that most of us live like Republicans yet vote Democrat. That's a whole different story for another day. Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, what do you mean by that, Cuddy? Go ahead, break it down. I want to hear that conversation. You, you, you listen. You look at the Republican platform, the 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 value of the Republican Party. You know, business, very much Christian or you know religious background. So if you if you look at the, the principles of the Republican Party, building your pulling yourself up or your economic development, having a Christian base or religious base, whether that's Methodist, whatever. A lot of those things we believe as people. Yet when it comes to voting. We vote for the other party. And that's that's a whole other conversation. I believe I'm an independent. I vote for the best candidate who can be best for my needs. 
I'm not going to stick with a, a party just because, you know, they say they're working for social programs. That's fine. But a lot of things we believe we, we don't want handouts. We want to be able to develop our work and develop, develop our, our platform as individuals. So Trump 2024. No, that has nothing to do with Trump, bro. Most, hey, that has nothing. And so that's the problem right there. That's the I'm problem just right there. I'm, I'm, I mean, I hear you. I'm just wondering, what does it mean? What I you hear mean? you. So what is what it? Is it Trump 2024? That Trump, okay, so Trump oh, has also recognized just because Trump ran under a Republican ticket doesn't mean that he believes in Republican philosophy. I get that, but the, the tent most of these folks right now are rendering, un, running under is the big lie is straight up racism is, is ridiculous shit. So I, I'm going to leave yeah. that alone. I do want to mention one thing quickly. It's interesting, that, and I'm not versed at all in Belize mm-hmm. at all. I just have some very interesting thoughts on things. So I'm wondering, like this diaspora office that Belize has created, I think it's important to connect with the diaspora. I think maybe you can speak on to why is it important for you to think about Belize as a place to have impact in from your position in the United States. And then also, why do you remain in the U.S. instead of going to live in Belize? That's a kind of triggering question just to a- answer, to ponder on. But I'm also wondering is what happens when the government depends on its diaspora to do the job it should be doing for its people in the country? You know, and I understand that the diaspora, because I'm a part of a Panamanian diaspora, has the impetus, has the desire to want to support the communities from which they come. But we've also seen models where remittances become the, the, in some countries, the remittances that come from abroad become one of the main sources of income yeah. in ways that the government can divert those monetary in certain communities mm-hmm. to further their projects of becoming bigger and, and rich in their pockets. So I'm, I'm always com- I'm always troubled by that part is when the diaspora has to make up for me, for make up for the government in many ways for the same reasons why they had to leave, you know, right. and then they're still trying to make life in this new country where they are, but then also supporting this. you not saying that they shouldn't because, you know, I think it's a personal decision, but I'm often just troubled about the government's role in depending on the diaspora for things that I feel that they should be a, do a better job of managing resources to contribute to these individuals and the education of the of the of the citizens that remain within their border. Yeah, so I, I can't speak to any other country, of course, but with Belize, let's let's use a case study that we all know, brother Chase, Chase Moore. I chase Moore. Chase, me and me and Chase's relationship is really interesting. He came in, he's from LA. I recognize it off front. We just start talking. And I'll go, yeah, bro, you know, I'm from Belize, whatever. And he's like, yeah, oh, my grandma was from there. So you look at Chase and Chase is third generation American now. And Chase has never had any relationship or any identification with the country besides that his grandmother was there. So when you start looking at it from a country, Belize has never really had a push to rally their diaspora. And when you look at that, Belize is about 300, about 372,000 people. I would venture, and that's funny, I was, I was just having a conversation with the minister. I met him in, uh, in Houston a couple of weeks ago, and I was like, he used the number, and I was like, hey, bro, you know that number's wrong. And, you know, I, of course, it wasn't in, in public. We talked about it off-site. There's, there's some reports that there's over 400 to 500,000 Belizeans in L.A. alone. So you look at the country population and L.A.'s population of Belizeans. That's not including San Antonio, Houston, New York, Chicago. Chicago and New York have Belizean days. So you have all these resources who are not tapped to actually help the country. 
So whereas a lot of places like the Philippines, a lot of that money that goes back to the Philippines, as you use the term remittance, comes from people who are working outside the Philippines. A lot of Belizeans are not supporting the country in that space. And then you we're at the point now where we have multiple generations of people who have lost their connection with the country. So one thing I was really happy about on one of my service trips, I was actually able to take Chase, his cousin, his brother was supposed to come with us too, but it was the first time going home. And I'll never, I'll never forget, we were driving through a little village the first day that we were there. And his cousin in the back, he says, hey, these people look different. He's like, they look, and Chase goes, they look just like us. And it clicked in that moment. It's like, oh, I'm home. This is where I'm supposed to be. And so allowing them to have that connection back with their country and to start to actually think about what that investment looks like. I'm having those same relationships, the same conversations with my own cousins. So I have a cousin who plays football at UNT, and he's starting to get to that point now where his identity is starting to understand who am I really? And he's starting to have new conversations about what it means to be a Belizean. And it's important that as people within the diaspora, that we teach our kids to be a part of the diaspora, and that they actually have a home besides what they see. Because the only thing they see now is on what they see on TV, or what they experience in school. And we all know how that could be could push you to actually lose your culture or to not be a part of something that's greater than you. And so being able to take him home, he was, we actually went home a couple weeks ago for a day and he was asking so much questions and being inquisitive about it. And that is what's going to allow him to start thinking about, okay, can I get land? Can I, you know, provide impact? I want to be an anesthesiologist. Can I do something within the country to help other people develop and grow like me? And so it's not, from our perspective, it's not looking to the government to, solve all the problems. It's knowing that we have an economic impact and we have these people out here who are not so much supporting what the government is doing. And we can't do it by ourselves because what's going to happen is you're going to have Canadian investors, Arabian investors, Chinese investors, Taiwanese investors who are going to come into the country. And then next thing you know, what happens to your country? It gets sold off. And that's what's happening in Belize. A lot of the best places to invest or to be a part of or to be a part of industry don't belong to us anymore. We have villages that are being sold so they can put up a hotel and people are being dispersed. And so it's important that we as people in the diaspora start to invest back in our own country. And I think that's the whole point of this office is to start to get people to start to trust within the government and to allow people to figure out how they can invest in Belize in infrastructure and things that the country needs. So Cuddy, you went to a, went to an HBCU. Absolutely. Texas Southern. So a few minutes ago, I, I held up this picture of one of my favorite black conservatives who would probably be a Republican. This is actually one of my favorite black people of all time, Booker T. Yeah. Washington. Yeah. One of my idols. I'm not saying I'm Republican or conservative. I'm just saying it's one of my favorite people of all time, Booker T. Washington. I, I love him dearly. Anyways. I got I got kicked out of the class because of that book. Why? The teacher wanted us to do this thing between Booker T. Washington and Du Bois and have like this conversation debate yeah. as a, a black literature class. Um, shout out to her for being stern but unbiased you know and i'll challenge her like yo why you put that up this, you know just going off on what i think from my young mind is why why would it why was there even a conversation between booker t and du bois but now as i've grown i'm like oh damn booker t was also some shit yes yeah but i didn't know that as a no and until you are challenged with things right until you're challenged with thought processes then you realize like oh there's other ways to live so let, okay, me, let, me, let me get to the question though yeah yeah so you have this education, foundation, social entrepreneurship efforts that you're doing. Talk about how you see the history of the founding of historically black colleges in the work that you're doing now. Or is there no parallels that you see? Because what I hear you say is, is that there's a lot of, even from the diaspora, that there's this idea of your own uplift and not necessarily being reliant on the government or people outside of your community 
to to sort of build up the homeland. It's got to go hand in hand, right? We we've got to build the mechanism that's going to create the change we want to see. And I, I I know sitting here for a fact, I can't do the work that I'm doing without the government. If I want to get to the point where we're creating a consortium that's allowing students to go to HBCUs and get education, some of the best education in the world, I need the government. Right? If I'm gonna if I'm gonna create opportunities for athletes to be recognized within the country, within the U.S., and start to get into the MLS or whatever space they want, I need the government. And it's it's a it's a hand in hand wash. But part of that, everything you said, and, and I'm just listening right now. Part of that, that's all extracting all those resources still out of Belize. And taking them to the U.S. So I think one of the, at least what I'm hearing from both of them is how do you help build or how does Belize want to build and stand in their own right where they have their own, you know, Belizean soccer league where black Americans are trying to go play for them, where the third generation, you know, black, you know, people like you used to run track, man. You know what I'm saying? You going back and running for track at a university in Belize. Oh, I don't want to extract, but I recognize in order for us to build a generation of people that can get to that sustainability level, the resources are not in the country. So if we're going to talk about tech, there's no tech schools within the space that can develop tech industry. So we have to have a generation that goes and gets that education and brings it back to the country. There's so many barriers before we can even get to the point of people learning that that we're trying to cover. So it's not me wanting to extract talent from Belize. It's me trying to create a, a an environment within the country that people can use what's there to get their education and further the country. And I think this is what I was trying to tell Langston is that it's a hand-in-hand wash. I have to use both the diaspora funding and the government institutes to develop the programs and the things within the country to help people succeed. I would love to take people from here and go build a tech institute. Cost money, resources, where I'm going to get it from. If I'm, not, if I'm going to look at, there's two ways to do that. You can either look at foreign investment, which is going to want a piece of what you build, or you can look at it from the diaspora to have the diaspora invest in what we're doing and know that it's completely in-house. And that in-house looks different with us because we have so many people, like we talked about earlier, who are outside the country. So I'm thinking like, all right, what about a Texas state partnering, you know, with communities over there where they help to build, you know, some sort of studio yeah, or some sort Texas of... Texas Southern, not Texas State. My fault. Oh, that, just yeah, that. that just shows my life. That just shows. Yeah, that's that bachelor education for you. No, you know what it is. Honestly, that's part of that multiculturalism bullshit that you learn in California. You understand, like how brainwashed I was. Man, I'm I'm almost embarrassed to say this honestly, but I'm gonna say it. Growing up in L.A. and this is me, maybe being mixed, whatever. But growing up still in predominantly black part of town, having predominantly black friends. Well, my homeboy, he went to Morehouse. And he was telling me he was finna go there. He's like, why don't you apply to an HBCU? I'm like, man, I don't want to go to a school that's going to be, you know what I'm saying? Like, I want to go to a school that's going to be more diverse. Mm-hmm. Like, why would I go to an all-black school? That To me, that doesn't make sense. And I went to the University of Wisconsin. <laughs> <laughs> Badgers. 90, I, 91% white, 1.8% black. But that just spoke to my limited understanding of, one, the history of HBCUs. I wish I would have had a better understanding of growing up in California. And two, just this misalignment of what multiculturalism is and what it isn't. You know what I'm saying? So I was pretty brainwashed my, myself growing up. And, in, you know, in ways that I'm still navigating through. But my fault. Texas Southern University. What about, I guess what I'm saying is how do we, and I'm not saying you should have the answers. I don't have the damn answers, but like, how do we help build institutions? We always talk about we, we need to build our own institutions as black folks in America. How do we maybe use the fact that we do have a, a, a 
economic privilege to help other countries build their own institutions in their own countries. And we don't necessarily have to think about it as like this full on, like how much money am I going to get back off my investment? But simply, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, that's what we're doing now, Devin. I mean, we are the work that is being done is not by me. It's we're funding and supporting organizations who are doing it, whether that's schools, orphanages, tutoring services, the Boys and Girls Club that are doing the work within the country. And that's our whole model. That's what separates us from other people. I mean, we are literally funding people who have the vision, who've made a sacrifice to go and do the work. And a lot of them are people who are used to being in the U.S. that went home to create their own programs or entities. And we're, we're standing behind them firmly and we're saying, regardless of what happens within the space or what the government says, we're going to be here by your side, funding you, supporting you, creating your, your digital pieces, your full branding, all the things that go into running an organization and allowing them to grow and develop within the country. Yeah, I'm not talking about your organization specifically. I mean, I think y'all are doing great work. I'm just thinking about like the way in which we think about international development. How do we have to rewire ourselves in order for places to to deal with their own resources? And Javier asked a question earlier about the government. He was why aren't they managing their resources better in a way where they're providing the services for these communities? Because if at least what I was hearing from that, it's the diaspora who's providing these resources to supplement and sustain these communities. Then it also sustains the government and allows the government to continue to operate in, in the same exact way. So then it also sustains the problem. And when you look up in 20 years from now or 50 years from now, what's different or is it so much worse? So this is where Devin is acting like a Republican. Because essentially, essentially, don't, tell him, don't saying, tell him that. Because hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. I'm telling him that. What I hear Devin saying is that we need a free market enterprise solution rather than the Belizean diaspora give to the government. Y'all go to Texas Southern, get an engineering degree, you go back to Belize. Start a tech company. I, I don't or, know. I, I'm, I'm actually, I'm not hearing it that way. I know yeah. I added it in there a little bit, but I'm just it, saying, what's the, that has to be the alternative. I don't know if it's an alternative because I think, you know, when we talk about diasporic populations, you know, I only can talk about the Panamanians that I know the best, but I'm pretty sure Belizeans aren't too far off. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, this is a place where it doesn't, the colonial yoke of British imperialism isn't mm-hmm. relinquished in that place until the 1980s. And that has been a historically an extractive colonial enterprise in that state. And then when you think about race, and then when people migrate to the United States, they are migrating in many ways the same economic, socially standard condition that they left the country. So when they come to the United States, you know, and we bring up people like in, in, in California in this created ghetto where these black Belizean immigrants are migrating to, what resources are they coming with? You know, literally they're building themselves up by their bootstraps. And then, you know, when you talk about HBCUs and comparing it to, comparing it to Belize, I think it's an amazing comparison, Dr. Clark, because I think when we think about our HBCUs, Florida A&M University right here, when we right. think about giving back and you run hell of dope giving back initiative. It's not that people from North Carolina A&T don't want to give back because they do. But when they give back that $100 a year or maybe $1,000 a year, what does that compare with to where I'm at Duke where one alumni can give them $6 million donation? Yeah. You see what I'm saying? So it's not, I think, Belize in the diaspora are the same. You know, if these people who had to literally relinquish themselves of a colonial yoke to go to another country to enter into this racialized hierarchy as non-citizen people, try to find a place, and then you asking me to build my country back up with $100 a month, or I can go to the foreign investor like the countries are doing, 
mm-hmm. they're going to give me $20 million to erase this village and create a, uh, a, a, a beach condominium place. Mm-hmm. So, you know, yeah. I didn't, I don't see it as that. And I think to the point that Dr. Devin is making, I think those are real questions. It's like, how do we, you know, what happens when we depend on these people who are, and, and you know, I don't want to bring up Chase. I don't know his home situation. I just know his story that he makes public. You know, his grandmother being Belizean, you can see where that family has gone socially since her migration. They obviously did not immediately ascend to these high places where they can make $2 million contributions back home. We couldn't make it at all. Hell, we barely making it here. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I think that's, that's always my problem um, or my issue that I want us to think critically about is what happens when the government does start depending on diaspora to do the things that I think they should do and with in many ways are the reasons why many people can't stay there anymore and had to make the decision to go. Because I think tourism so, so is I'm gonna shut I, up. I think, go ahead. No, 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 no. I, I I'm not trying to trying to completely cut you off, but I I, yeah, I, I, I want to highlight an interesting point that you make about how maybe unsure it is to rely on a diaspora to to fund initiatives in the home country if the diaspora itself is struggling. Let me, and I, and I, yeah, I know we, we have two different, we're two different countries, right? And we're not going to put Central American countries all in the same bucket. But the diaspora, from my perspective, there's never been a support from the diaspora to support the country, at least by the Belizean government. This is the first time in our history, and we were informed since 1981 as a country, that they've actually said, okay, we're going to make the diaspora a priority. They, this is the first time. And when you talk about making the diaspora a, a priority, what you're then talking about is how do we get some of those human resources back into the country and how do we allow them to, to grow and flourish here so we can help the country grow on a whole and actually do it internally. So from that's I'm just saying from our from our perspective as, as a Belizean, a second generation, well, first generation American, that was great for me because I've been doing the work. And I've never had a conversation with anybody to say, okay, how do we support you to continue to do the work? It's never happened. So that's a, that, that's what excites me about the time we're in right now. Javi, you said something just now that started to make me think about the unique position of Belizeans. I think this happens with Panamanians too. When you come to the United States, based on how you look, you have to choose either to go into one racial structure or another racial structure, either to choose to be a part of the black racial structure or the Hispanic racial structure. And those two spaces don't look the same. And sometimes families, as time goes on, they end up growing in two different spaces, even though they're from the same family. And I think that's a, even another structure because when you start taking those ideas and concepts and moral values back to the country, there's different things within the space. Also, as much as they are similar, they're different. And then you start taking these back to the country and you start to try to build something on that. And that's another clash too. There's places out there where you have different associations and some of them are black and some are Hispanic because of the difference in how they live in America, even though they're both Belizean. Thank you, Cuddy, for joining us. I want us to take some time before we all go. Cuddy, can you tell the folks where they can reach you on social media? How can they support what you're doing? Websites, whatever, what have you? Yeah, absolutely. So Belizean Education Empowerment Foundation, or we call it the Busy Foundation, B-Z-E-E Foundation. Just make sure we're starting that work. So B-Z-E-E Foundation.org. That's our website where you can make a donation. We're also on Facebook. If you want to do searches on Facebook, same thing. And I just got the LinkedIn page up and running. So we're in that space as well. Okay. What happened to beef? Beef is the same thing. Okay. B-E-E-F. Belizean Education Empowerment. Yes, our initials, Belize, B-Z, Education Empowerment Foundation. Okay. Yeah, so 
Beef it up. I was trying to make sure, you know what I'm saying, the streets is aware that this is still beef. I was trying to figure it out. We're we're here. We're here. We're just, we're going to, this 2020 is going to be a great year for us. 22? 22? Oh, dang, it is 22. It could have been that bad, huh? It's been a rough year so far. It was two years, bruh. I got to update the system. Let's go back to 2020 and redo it all. Man. But this year, I, I think the goals is to make sure that we're more visible. It's to make sure that we're casting our net wide and bringing more people into our mission. And then really making sure that we're effectively creating sustainable programs. That's the biggest part. Because if we step away from the situation or something happens to me, I want to make sure that that program that we start or that we fund can continue to grow. And we've seen that. We've supported the Diabetes Walker and they're, they're thriving. We supported the, the Boys and Girls Club and they're thriving. We're going to talk about water workers. And so if anybody ever goes to Belize, please stop by us on Albert Street, right in the heart of the city. Don't be scared. They look just like you. These the uh, the Belize Education Empowerment Foundation, of course, in partnership with Water Walkers Boys and Girls Club in Belize City. And so, just you know, reach out and and, and when you travel there, you know, visit the places that matter. Don't just stay in the, the resorts. Go and see the people. I've heard so many times people say, "Oh, I can't go to Belize. It's just like it's ghetto. It's this. It's that. It's a microcosm of Los Angeles." So, if you feel at home in Los Angeles, then you should go feel at home in Belize. It just looks different. Yeah. I mean, I, I, one thing I want to talk about when we have some time is this concept of. How do, how do we, especially on this call right here, we're talking about, we all have these different programs and how do you manage that when you have international focus, but you also have domestic things that you want to do too. And so we're launching, launching a GTP agency to really help tell stories around organizations. So people who have a small business idea or a nonprofit space and need to get their branding up. If your logo looks like trash, you know, saying we'll, we'll help you develop and fund and support you in, in the domestic space as well. And so everything we've been doing lately has really been around how do we start our own conglomerate so I can do my Street Liberator, the Belize Education Empowerment Foundation, and everything else that I'm doing within the education space in America, along with the work we're doing international. And so that's really the next focus for me is to, in my involvement is to start to run these different places that I have or these different entities as a conglomerate. You know, the Johnson & Johnson or Deloitte, you know, these these massive companies that are out there, we got to start running our, our entities like that because you get pigeonholed into one space. And we're more than that. What's up? That's what's up, man. It's, it's been great to see your growth, Cuddy, over the years, man. And having you as a friend and just seeing all that you've done and developed and the influence that you had on me and me starting my organization, that was directly tied to you. So appreciate your motivation, everything you do for the community here in Belize. And I just got to say, because it's on my mind, I just see also such an opportunity, the fact that you work at HT and they have very little international Stuff, period, period. Because, you know, you can run something to Belize. You can also, that could be a way you got to also create something there for people that attracts people there and really connect on just a lot of the different things we talked about in this conversation. And, and I'm thankful for the, the unanswered questions that we are left with here today. That felt very kind of academic, but it also felt very fun. It's part of life. You ain't going to have all the questions, man, at all, at all times. Answers, yeah, that's real. I'm really good to focus on it. So. I'm gonna I'm gonna challenge you to to look at your your uh, moral values and see which party they really align with. Not saying you have to join a party, but just think through it. Get away from the social, the media, and actually look at where you're at. I just want to say also thank you, Cuddy, for the work that you're doing. 
As you can see, I always, I'm always going to take shots at the government at any chance that I get. But I, I honestly do believe that in many ways that it has been the diaspora of these different places that have sustained the communities um, historically in ways that we have not recognized unless we're deeply involved with them. I think things have changed. And I say that to say, I think the work that you're doing is in line with those historical actions of people who had to do things on their own in ways that they just, that the people who are supposed to be in charge of their lives for whatever their beliefs are, have not been able to do. So I think you're doing important work. I think it is historically based and I'm excited to see what you do in the future. And I think these questions will continue to linger and I'll leave the question to the listening audience who I'm assuming are mostly black people living in the United States, if not ethnically African-American, when we are a part of this consumerist, consumerism culture and we want vacations too. We mm-hmm. want to travel. We yeah. want to get on the cruise. So what does it mean for us to also get on those boats as African-American people or people in the U.S. and pull up into those ports and demand service from these individuals who you're a part of? So I, I want to leave that to the listening audience. What is our role when we want these vacations, when we want to be a part of that? That's that. I'll, I'll leave that there, not to be answered, but just to be thought no. about. And just to add to that is, you know, when you, when you go to these places, go to the see the people. Your money goes further with them. It's going to make a bigger impact to go and actually be in place. So if you go to K-Town, go, go. you can't go to K-Town without going to a township. If you're going to go to, you know, police, then please go to the capital, get out the city, go to the south side of the city, go to the villages. If you need to figure out where to go, please reach out to us. We'll be happy to set up a trip and, and, and make it work for you. All right. We do our service trips once a year. We'll be coming out with our date, looking at the pandemic and seeing how that works. But we're going to definitely do one sometime this year. And so ha- I'll be happy to, you know, anybody who wants to come with us, please just we have a form on our website. Fill it out. Thank you for joining this bonus episode of Entrepreneurial Appetite. If you enjoyed the show, leave a positive comment, give us five stars and support us via Patreon. A link can be found in the show notes.